0: Good morning, I'm Sanaa and you're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. Every Monday morning, I'm joined by experts from across the country who are investigating our most pressing social issues and common curiosities. Over the next hour, you'll learn about their inspirations, motivations, and of course, what they know about the world around us. So grab that cup of coffee and get ready for a fun and insightful conversation. When you're not listening to WYXR and hearing local artists or the various genres of music from our diverse slate of DJs, then I'm guessing you're consuming music through a streaming service, a streaming service that also recommends music to you. But how do those recommender systems know what to recommend? How do those systems know your taste in music or even influence your taste? These questions of music, taste, and algorithms are what we'll be diving into today with Dr. Nick Siever. Dr. Seaver is an assistant professor of anthropology at Tufts University, where he is also the director of the program in science, technology, and society. He studies how people use technology to make sense of cultural things. His first book is about the people who make music recommender systems and how they think about their work. It's called Computing Taste, Algorithms, and the Makers of Music Recommendation, and it's available now wherever you buy books, but especially at your local bookstore. Good morning, Nick. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me. It's great to be here.
0: Yes. Well, as I said before we kind of hopped on this interview, as soon as I saw the title of your book announced, Computing Taste, Algorithms and the Makers of Music Recommendation, I just knew I had to have you on the show. I mean, after all, WYXR is a community radio station. And one of our goals is to promote a wide range of musical genres or maybe even tastes. And in doing so, hopefully expose listeners to new music and especially local talent. So I'm like, okay, I think there's some overlap here especially thinking about how we're thinking about taste or even learning about new music. And I'll be honest, I'm also in an ongoing fight um, with Spotify over what it recommends me. So so your book, um, help me think about why maybe I'm not the best listener, but we'll get into some of that as well. Um, I just have to say, Nick, I absolutely love the book's prologue. You really hooked me. You trapped me. Thank you. (laughs) You trapped me just like these music recommender systems are trying to trap us and retain us. Um, But before we jump all the way into what you talk about in the book and the unique way that you get to this question of algorithms and and the makers of music recommendation systems, I want to know what are you listening to right now?
1: Oh, that's a good question. What am I listening to right now? Uh, you know, I have two young kids, so I am listening to a combination of music from Disney movies and music from when I was in college, uh, on on uh, you know streaming services. Now I have not gotten into new music in a while, but I think Spotify calls it Float House. The stuff oh. that I was listening to, though, I never heard of that name before.
0: <laughs> okay all right so spotify is kind of picking up maybe on some of your your taste a little um, bit a little bit okay um now i want to know think, thinking about spotify and, and this station it might be recommending to you um knowing everything that you know in your professional expert opinion how accurate accurate would you say your music recommenders have been
1: Oh, it's a good question. I think like the big, the big thing for me with these recommender systems is that we always think about them as in terms of how accurate they are, right? You Mm -hmm. listen, you're like, ah, this isn't for me. Um, Oh, you know, this is right. This is good. And it's funny because I think like at at scale, like across everyone who listens to them, it kind of doesn't matter how accurate mm-hmm. they are right to the to the people who build them. It's not so much about being accurate, right, like getting your taste exactly right, but about usually about sort of exposing you to things that, you know, maybe you didn't know before. So if you they play you something you didn't like and you didn't like it, uh, that's not a problem for them actually that's kind of data that's useful so I find that you know sometimes I feel like oh this is great I learned about a song that I never heard before this is interesting and sometimes you say oh my gosh please don't recommend that to me that's just because I had to listen to that one song on repeat with my son uh, it's not about it's not about me I think a lot of people have that experience
0: right absolutely I'm thinking about um like the Spotify raps and other you know ways yeah. that we can see what we've been listening to and um it's like oh yeah that's song was on repeat because I was you know in a very sad place <laughs> like that doesn't represent <laughs> my, my actual taste or interest yeah. in music <laughs> So I love how there's a lot of different contexts coming into play when we're all listening to music. Um, okay, so the book's overarching question is, how do the people who design and build recommender systems think about music, listeners, and taste? And you come about a very unique way of getting to, or what I think is a unique way of getting to this question. Um, but I'm wondering if you could tell us just a little bit about how you even came to this question. Like, how did you decide, oh, this is something that I want to get into and that I think I can learn more about?
1: For sure. So yeah, I've been interested for a long time in music technology questions. So before Mm -hmm. I ever worked on uh, music recommender systems, I actually, uh, my first academic publication was about the history of the player piano, right? So like automatic robotic pianos from over 100 years ago. Uh, And the reason I find this stuff so interesting uh, is that music is weird, right? Like music is this kind of domain where we've got uh, really cultural, subjective human stuff going on, but we also have a ton of technology, right? Like mm. instruments, uh, mm-hmm. uh, recording technologies, streaming, and then of course recommender systems are all technologies that are sort of tied up in music. And so, music is a really interesting place to investigate some of these really basic questions and sort of common sense assumptions that a lot of people have about the idea that culture and technology are sort of necessarily separate because Mm -hmm. in music, they're not, they're necessarily together. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, we have a lot of ideas about how they ought to be apart, but they're sort of not, you know, we have this saying that there's no accounting for taste, this idea Mm -hmm. that there's no way to sort of rationally deal with taste. And yet here's all these recommender systems and that's what they're trying to do all the time. So I really thought, you know, what, what must it be like to work on these things, to build these systems that a lot of people's common sense say can never work like shouldn't Mm. exist aren't possible you know because the people who build these systems they know they've heard they've heard that there's no accounting for taste so i was really interested in how they thought about what they were doing Because Mm -hmm. I didn't hear that represented a lot in the way that people were talking about these systems sort of out out in public. I think there was a lot of assumption that the folks who built built these systems, like, they didn't know. They hadn't heard that they weren't supposed to do this. Um, And so I wanted to know, you know, sort of straight from them, um, what's going on? Why do you think this makes sense to do?
0: Yeah, I love that question because um we're all pretty familiar with this term algorithm that gets, you know, tossed about all the time and and is used to mean different things, but as you point out in the book you know, while there might be this idea that algor- algorithms are inherently bad, that the algorithms are, are manipulating us in some way um, that makes us more like the platform simply want us to be, you talk about in the book that, of course, there's no unaccompanied algorithm, right? That there are people behind the algorithms making choices, and this in this case, choices about music and listening and hearing. Um, so I'm wondering if you could talk to us just a little bit about algorithms and maybe help us understand what an algorithm is and what it isn't, other than how I think a lot of people are thinking about it, like just this very bad piece of technology that is, um, you know, forcing us into a certain way of choosing or seeing or listening?
1: That's a great question. I think uh, the funny thing about the term algorithm, and I love that you said, you know, oh, we all know what an algorithm is, because when I started doing this project, which I have to say in academic time is a long time, you know, it was over 10 years ago, nobody knew what an algorithm was and nobody was talking about it. And so one thing that's happened since then is we have a really sort of lively public chatter about algorithms and the algorithm. Okay. So, an algorithm is a few things, right? One, the sort of official, you know, computer scientist definition of an algorithm is basically a well defined procedure for turning inputs into outputs. So, say mm-hmm. if you, uh, if I shuffled a deck of cards and gave it to you and you unshuffled the cards and put them in order, you might do that with an algorithm, a sorting algorithm to put those things in order. That's the kind of textbook algorithm that a lot of people uh, have in mind when they talk about what an algorithm is. It's very simple, it doesn't know anything about really anything, right? It can't, this is not. The kind of thing you want making you like music recommendations. <laughs> uh, and so I think that when people talk about how algorithms like have no chance of understanding music, sometimes they have this kind of naive, very simple algorithm in mind. Um, when, on the other hand, when we talk about the algorithm, Today, what we're usually talking about is some kind of like machine learning personalization system, right? So a really big and complicated, it's not one algorithm technically, right? It's lots of parts of computers and so on, a lot of data sources. That's, you know, doing some kind of modeling of you to say like, okay, well, you've done this kind of stuff. We think you're gonna do this kind of stuff in the future. You know, if you liked Mm -hmm. that, you'll also like this. Um, And I don't wanna say that they're good because they're complicated. I don't think that's actually true. But one thing that is true because they're complicated, is that they have people in them, right? So every, you know, uh, Spotify, for instance, does what's called continuous deployment. So if you use Spotify, there are people working at Spotify right now who are updating the software, updating the algorithm uh, constantly. They can do it whenever they want they'll do it. You don't even know what happened, right? They don't have to update the stuff on your computer. It's always happening. And so my argument for a long time has been, you know, we talk about algorithms like they're inhuman, right? Like it's just math doing stuff to culture. But on the inside of these algorithms, there are people, they're making choices. If something goes haywire, they're trying to fix it. They're constantly changing this stuff. And so I think it's really important to understand how these people think, like I said before, not just because it's interesting, although I do think it's kind of interesting, um, but because the way that they think has a direct bearing on how these systems work, right? You can't mm-hmm. just learn about a basic computer science algorithm and get what's going on in a recommender system, because the people inside the system can change it whenever they want, and according to whatever principles they want. So what are those principles? Mm-hmm. That's kind of the guiding question behind the book.
0: Yes. And I love the range of people that you talked with, and particularly their ideas uh, of taste, their ideas of of listening and, and music. And I thought that was really interesting because you are able to show how the people, right, who are creating the systems, how their own thoughts are making their way into the algorithm or the algorithms um, that are happening. And then, of course, affecting how we're interacting with these music recommender systems. So I really like the voices of the different folks that you talk to throughout this as well. Now, I want to... talk a little bit more about algorithms because you talk a lot about how algorithms now are really used to retain users. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that because that's different than how these algorithms, even for music recommender systems were thought about previously.
1: Yes. Okay. So let's do a little history lesson. Uh, (laughs) recommender systems right the, the algorithm the thing we usually talk about now more or less started in the mid-1990s that's you know the the first big sort of research papers that put them out are in the mid-90s uh, and they use a technique that's called collaborative filtering uh, and what that was uh as it still exists it's still used actually kind of a lot is basically like imagine a spreadsheet and you've got like people on one side so- on the rows and the columns are like the music to be recommended and in every Cell in that spreadsheet is a number, and that number is how much that person likes that item. And mm-hmm. so that spreadsheet's big, right? There's a lot of users, there's a lot of items, um, but it's really empty. Because most people haven't listened to most things, most things haven't been listened to by most people. Uh, but the the sort of game, the puzzle of collaborative filtering is how do we guess what's going to show up in those empty mm-hmm. spots? And so for a long time, that was what recommender systems did. They they were a lot of techniques for guessing what would show up in those empty spots in the spreadsheet. Uh, and basically, the way you told, figured out whether you were doing a good job or not was you compared your guesses to what actually happened. Right. So I mm-hmm. say, oh, you know, someone's going to like this this. Christina Aguilera's song, five stars. Oh, she only looked at four stars. That's not quite right, right? So, And that would get all added together. And you actually had like one number that told you how accurate your system was. Mm-hmm. Um, that was that was the sort of like main thing for a long time. And these systems originally were developed um, for really enthusiastic people. So the earliest music recommender is a system called Ringo, developed at MIT in 1994, uh, and they said, you know, they would say, hey, music lovers, like, here's a way to find new music, right? Here's a way to find, you know, you're crate digging, you want to find cool stuff, here's a system to help you find cool things. Um, okay, so a lot of stuff changes between mm-hmm. the mid 90s and like today. <laughs> um, one of them is streaming, right? So these early recommender systems, there's no streaming, it's easy to imagine that like, oh, of course, recommender systems and streaming go together, but they didn't, right? These were like, there were CDs, the yeah. recommender system to go by, it's a very, it's a very different thing, um, and so what happens is a lot of the data that goes into the recommender system stops being like tell us how much you like these things, but instead they just look at what you do, right? They look at the history, Mm -hmm. your listening history. This is all obvious in some sense now, like we kind of know that's what's happening, but this was not how it happened first. So they're using data about how you listen and they're no longer trying to predict your ratings because you're not doing ratings. They're trying to predict how you're going to behave. And Mm -hmm. basically they're just, they're just measuring like what happens. So I change my algorithm and I might look and see, how did that affect what people are doing, right? Are people listening more? Are they listening Mm -hmm. less? Are they changing what they're doing? So so it turns out that listening more and less is really important to the way Mm -hmm. that people end up measuring this because, and again, I think this kind of makes sense. If you're satisfied with how the system works, you're probably going to listen more. And so that becomes kind of the metric, right? There's a bunch of ways to measure how much you listen, but if you listen more, that means you're satisfied that means the system's working and so instead of being designed to you know help enthusiastic listeners explore there's still a bit of that around most recommender systems for music today are designed primarily for the person who like wouldn't really listen to a lot of music necessarily doesn't really want to try that hard but they would listen to something if it was easy enough and i think people i recognize myself sometimes in this right that i'll just want to, i'll put something on if it's easy for me to find. And so that becomes the kind of bulk of the, of the market, the imagined user base for recommender systems. Mm,
0: So no longer that enthusiastic listener who is ready to hear some new music and get exposed to a new artist and, but rather someone who's just like, Oh, I just need some music that I'm almost going to forget about. That's going to maybe fade into the background. Um, but not something that I'm actively maybe being involved in, um,
1: yeah, I think that's true, and I think there's a variation, right? So, like mm-hmm. right now, I would say they're aiming at all of those kinds of people. It just turns out that there's probably more of those indifferent people than there are of the really enthusiastic people, and the really enthusiastic people might be more likely to say, "An algorithm, I don't need that." Right? <laughs> just say, "I'm going to do it myself." So it's a trickier question. But I, but if you use like Spotify for instance, uh, discover weekly that's Mm -hmm. on Spotify, which is a feature there that recommends Music Group, that's aimed at the enthusiast, right? That's aimed at people who want to explore stuff. And it's packaged up specifically to say, this isn't the playlist for like listening through, this is a playlist for clicking through and being like, is any of this any good?
0: Mm -hmm. Um, So I think
1: a lot of platforms now try to aim different parts of what they're doing at different kinds of, of listener.
0: Yeah, that's so good. Because as you were saying that and using that as your example, I was like, oh my goodness, I never listen to the Discover Weekly. (laughs) So I'm the person who's like, (laughs) I guess I'm the person who's like, I don't want to listen to just all new music, (laughs) right? I want to hear some things that I'm familiar with and then like slip in something that maybe I don't know. And then I feel like, oh, wow, this is cool. And now I like it. And now it's starting to come up more. Um, But I don't actively, like, I'm not that enthusiastic listener (laughs) who's like, what's the newest or latest? Right, right. Oh my goodness. So, wow, that's me. Okay. So, the other thing that I found really interesting is you talk a lot about overload because. And you start, you kind of start the book with this idea of, you know, oh, we're overloaded with information. We need some way, or we need someone to recommend to us because we can't certainly go through everything there is in any category of things that exist. And I was really intrigued by this idea of overload um, as a myth. And I'm wondering Mm. if you could talk a little bit about that.
1: Yeah. Okay. So this is kind of a controversial point, I think, in the book. But uh, (laughs) yeah, let's talk about it. So. Okay, if you ask someone who makes a recommender system, like, why, what is this for? Like, why do we need this? Um, Almost always, the first answer you're going to get is, well, if you didn't have this, you would be overwhelmed, right? Mm -hmm. So this is true in music, for instance. So like someone working for a streaming service will say, you know, there's 40 million songs in this streaming service catalog how are you going to deal with that like what are you going to find a recommender system of some sort will help you deal with that um on facebook for instance even uh if you, if you look on the the facebook like help pages and you try to see like why is there an algorithm like why can't i just see what my friends post they say if we did that you would be overwhelmed there's too much stuff <laughs> yeah. right there's too many things so it is the explanation for why recommenders exist and so i kept hearing it and i thought you know i got to I got to look into this. I got to think about this more because it seems so obvious to me, like, sure, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Um, But then I realized, you know, wait a minute, why is it why is it a problem to have access to 40 million songs on a streaming service? Like, why is that overwhelming? That doesn't have to be overwhelming, right? I could just Mm -hmm. do the same thing I would have done before it and gone and looked for the one album that I know that I like, right? And is that bad? It's only bad if you think I ought to be listening to everything or I ought to be exploring more. And so what I I do in this one chapter of the book that talks about overload as a myth is I try to give, and this is maybe a little technical, but it's kind of an anthropological understanding of myth. So Mm -hmm. the short version is that in anthropology, which is my field, when we talk about myths, we're not talking about things that are fake about things that are like lies or untrue we're talking about these like really these stories that say something about the nature of the world uh and so a myth in anthropology is for instance as i say in the book uh there's a story that that someone tells there where they talk about what happened when um uh hypothetically like two cave people were trying to figure out whether the the berries on the bush outside of their cave Mm -hmm. were edible or not uh, and this guy, who's a recommender systems researcher, tells this story and says, "You know, the first time they did that, when they had to, they waited and they watched to see what happened to someone else who ate the berries, and they learned from that person what they should do. That was like the first recommender system." And I, I remember hearing that story and thinking, "What? This is a <laughs> wild story. Like this is made up. Obviously, he's not claiming right. that this actually happened, <laughs> but this is a myth. So this mm-hmm. is the kind of story we mean, right? He, it's not a really." True or false. Like it doesn't really matter if it's false. What it is, is it's a story about the way the world is, right? This is a story about a world in which just existing is kind of overwhelming and you need help from other people, from technologies. And therefore, the world is fundamentally overwhelming and everything is kind of a recommender system, right? So, not just the algorithm, but your friend, the fact that you grew up in a small town and you learned about certain things and not about other things. This is a way of thinking that says, you know, everything is a recommender system, and I thought that was sort of interesting because we don't usually think of everything as being a recommender system. But if Mm -hmm. you do, that changes uh, the way that you think about, you know, what problems you might have. Right? If someone Mm -hmm. says, "Hey, you shouldn't use the algorithm or something," your response would be, "Well, hey, you can get rid of my algorithm, but there's still a recommender system. Not just not one that I designed, right? Some kind of recommender system is in play because you're you're just going to see what you saw. You're going to see, you know, chronological order." putting your feet mm-hmm. in chronological order, that's an algorithm too, <laughs> right? It is, and it would yeah. just true. it is an algorithm. Um, but it's a way, it's an interesting question of sort of saying, you know, uh, of trying to make everything seem like a, 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 a recommender and using the idea of overload as mm-hmm. the kind of fundamental justification. And I realized I sort of went off of your question, which is, you know, what's the deal with overload as a myth. And I think part of it is, you know, if you look like right now, I think a lot of people feel overwhelmed. And so I'm not saying that's fake. I feel overwhelmed sometimes too. (laughs) Um, But what I am saying is that there are these stories, you know, about like, oh, right now we are overwhelmed because right now there's an unprecedented amount of stuff. If you look back through history, you can find people saying exactly that. Mm -hmm. For hundreds of years, for thousands of years, actually. Uh, And that all suggests that maybe what's going on is not just too much stuff, but there's something about us, right? Mm -hmm. And so I talk about in this chapter of the book, this idea that, you know, the idea of overload is not just a lot of stuff, but it's also a kind of person who's Mm -hmm. overwhelmed. Uh, And so to think about overload is also to imagine like a kind of person, right? The Mm -hmm. kind of person you want to be. So what would make Spotify overwhelming for me? if I thought of myself as the kind of person who wished that I had heard everything in there, right? (laughs) That I had found everything there was to find. If I wasn't that kind of person, then I could just say, okay, that's fine. Like, I don't mm-hmm. care. <laughs> not, like, it, doesn't, it doesn't hurt me. And then I don't need a recommender system. Right. It's an, it's a weird, yeah. it's a, it's kind of weird. If you think about it for, as it was weird for me, because I was really the kind of person that thought I do need a recommender system. But I think there are plenty of people out there who are like, yeah, obviously you don't need a recommender system. It's fine. <laughs> like right. I, I don't feel overwhelmed by Spotify. <laughs>
0: Yes, I love this chapter because it did it made me think about this idea of overload differently. but then of course to the point of your book, understanding how the people who are making the recommender systems what are their assumptions what are their what do they believe about the world and how is that getting input into the algorithms that they create. But I'll be honest even outside of thinking about music and music recommender systems, just that that reframe of what overload is and who is overloaded it actually gave me a little sense of calm. I was like, I don't have right. to be overwhelmed. <laughs> I,
1: I think there's like a, there's like a the self-help version of this, which is, you know, Hey, you feel overwhelmed and it's not just about there being too much stuff, right? There's like an, I don't want to put it on individuals. There's an attitude shift you could take. Not really, <laughs> but there's, there is something to it though, right? That overloaded doesn't just exist in the stuff. It's also yeah. in the overloaded person. And there are, you know, I think people who work at these companies try to make you feel that way, right? They want you to feel overwhelmed because if you don't feel overwhelmed, then there's no reason to use the stuff.
0: Right, exactly. Well, I'm feeling less and less overwhelmed. I like my music Good. recommender system, so it must be working. Um, let's take a quick break. This is Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. We are here on Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR ninety one point seven FM. I'm Sana, and I'm here with Dr. Nick Seaver, who is the author of Computing Taste Algorithms and the Makers of Music Recommendation. Now, before the break, we were talking about some of the ways that the folks who are creating these recommender systems might be thinking about the music, the amount of music, how to make an algorithm, and what is the purpose of algorithms? Are we trying to um, entice users? Are we trying to, you know? Retain these users, but you also talk a lot, of course, about you know who the listeners are, um, what do they want, but also um, how are they listening to music? And this is where we touch a little bit about it. But thinking about those enthusiastic listeners and those indifferent listeners, and what I found really interesting in this chapter was kind of the mismatch between the developers of these recommender systems as avid listeners um, and music lovers, what we might say, and then the many indifferent listeners that are are typically the ones who are using these recommender systems. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how the engineers and the developers are kind of making sense of who they are as, as music lovers and then the type of work they're doing and who they're doing it for.
1: That's a great question. So this part of the book came out of sort of fact that we have been living through a moment of of a lot of critique of the tech industry right a lot of a lot of public critique of biased algorithms of systems that cause harm to marginalized people of systems that you know are really designed for a kind of uh dominant you know demographic group uh and a lot of those critiques um suggest that that the problems uh, many of these problems emerge from the kind of like uh, uh, uh the fact that that the people who work in these companies are all the same, right? That there's this kind of demographic similarity. These guys, it's all, you know, a bunch of sort of white guys in their, you know, 20s, 30s, 40s, uh, who are solving their own problems uh, and don't really have the kind of the range to understand like what's going on for other people. Uh, and I think, you know, this is a really important critique. And it's something that we have to we have to take into consider- consideration because absolutely the fact that there's all these people working in these systems, they're putting their worldview. Uh, into these things that's you know a lot of a lot of the book is about that Um, but because my focus as an anthropologist is on how the people working here think I thought okay well how do these people think about that problem right what do they think about Mm -hmm. the difference between themselves and the people outside Uh, and I found that it was a little more complicated than I expected right so um, there's a common critique that we that we make uh, in my in my field that's called the I methodology. So we say, oh, the problem with a lot of these technologies um, is that the people who build them use the I methodology, which is they think, what do I want? And they build that. And so they end up building sort of for themselves. And that's why these systems don't work. That's not what happens in music recommendation, actually. Uh, When I talked to people and watched them making design decisions, they were always so worried that the people that were using the systems were really not like themselves and Mm -hmm. that therefore it was you could not assume that you were a model user. You really had to imagine what that other person was like. Um, okay. So great. That, that <laughs> We don't have to do that. We don't have to do the basic critique. Okay. But what what are we imagining? Well, um, predominantly what I found is that they imagined that they, they themselves were extremely avid music listeners, right? They were really knowledgeable about music. They cared about music a lot. Um, they were really interested in music. They were that kind of like, expert listener who like might use a recommender system to help them explore new things they'd never heard of before but they thought that their typical user was going to be someone who was not like that right mm-hmm. someone who was not super into music and therefore you couldn't imagine that you were like them because you weren't right uh, and so so I make this point in the book that this I call this avidity right so I some people are really into music they're really avid about music and some people aren't Uh, And so a lot of people started to imagine that the the most important difference between the inside of the company and the outside of the company was basically how enthusiastic about music you were, not so much demographic things, although people did worry about demographic categories like you know is there a, a racial imbalance and a gender imbalance in the company but i think most people didn't think that that mattered to like the the way the system worked right they didn't think that the design of the system was being affected by that i don't think that's true uh, correct i think that uh, i think it probably did matter um but they really saw the difference as being how enthusiastic about music they were and i just thought that was a really interesting point because a lot of people who write sort of critical things about companies like you know spotify or really any of these music tech companies often work from this assumption that those companies don't know anything about music, that they don't mm. care about music. They're just not, they're not careful about music. They don't think about it. And that's not really true, right? I think that, that people who work in these companies really care a lot about music. And what we see in the fact that, you know, nevertheless, they do things that we don't like from, from the outside <laughs> is that caring for music is big a big category. there's <laughs> There's a lot of things that can mean, and it does not guarantee the results that you might that you might want but we can't go in and say oh the problem is just that you know these people don't care enough about music and they're cultural they're culturally stupid we should bring in someone who knows about culture because that's not actually going to solve your problem
0: Mm-hmm. yeah absolutely I was actually very interested in how you describe the ways that these developers care about music they have they come to it from different approaches um but they are very much um, interested and excited about music um now one thing that you mentioned was um about like the demographic data which I th- which I think is um, something that we are more concerned about now, about how our demographic data is used, um, how it's being used for targeted advertising, or just other information that is out there about us and how that could be used. But you talk about in the book how developers are very intentionally trying to stay away from making kind of profiles of listeners based solely on race, gender, class, et cetera. So you do talk a little bit more about how they are and aren't using different demographic data points.
1: Yeah, this is such an important thing. I think for a lot of people to know about how these systems work today, because we, you know, we encounter recommender systems and targeted advertising and all that all the time. And I think a lot of people develop you know, sort of ideas about how it must work that are not quite aligned with how they work. So, mm-hmm. right, when recommender systems are first introduced, these collaborative filters in the 90s I talked about, the the thing that people would say was so great about them uh, was that they didn't know anything, right? They knew about users liking items. They didn't know anything about you other than what you liked, in the sense of what you know, what you rated or nowadays what your listening history is. Um, and the people who built them saw this as a real contrast to like demographic marketing, right? So this idea that you might listen to particular music because you listen to a certain radio station and that radio station was very explicitly targeted at a slice, at a certain you know, an age, race, gender slice. That's sort of the way that radio stations were, were and still are programmed. And so they said, you know, what's great about these is that they can help you break out of that bubble. Because if, you, if you're getting targeted because of your race and your gender, maybe you don't like that stuff. Maybe you like something else and a system that can sort of find, can see what you listen to, see what you like, that could actually break you out. So it was very important to people building these systems that they were basically, you know, race blind and also demographic blind oh. uh, of any sort. Now, that's partially true today still, but it has weird consequences. So one thing that we know uh, is that race-blind policies and basically all domains are not race-neutral policies, right? right? So any effort to try to be race-blind is going to probably accidentally, well, not maybe not accidentally, it's going to reinforce certain kinds of racial dynamics. So for instance, if you're recommending music to people based on what they listen to, and you say, well, we don't know anything about demographics, you are going to find that your system still recommends black music uh, in a way that's recognizable. It might still recommend white music in a way that's recognizable because that's how people listen. It's Mm -hmm. going to reproduce the kind of listening patterns. And so in uh, in critical writing about machine learning nowadays, this is called the proxy problem um, because even if your big fancy machine learning system has no explicit data about say race in it, uh, you might get something that looks like race out Mm -hmm. of the results because the data that you have is a proxy for race. It's standing in for race. There are a lot of classic examples of this. Redlining and mortgages is one, right? This is banks who are prohibited from using race in determining mortgage uh, 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 granting will use used zip codes instead. And of course Mm -hmm. zip codes tracked with race based on where people lived. And so they said, oh, we're not using race, we're using zip codes. And of course that was race actually. So a lot of things are race uh, because we live in a, in a society that has race in it. Uh, And so a lot of this stuff is sort of, it sort of comes back out uh, despite the fact that people don't want to put it in Mm -hmm. Um, what's interesting about it in music uh, is that it's not obviously bad in music, Mm -hmm. right? So one thing that, that the sort of, you know, demographic focused radio stations, for instance, made possible were, were charts like sort of, you know, popularity charts, billboard charts that were, um, allowed music by black artists to be seen right to be to sort of show up as as popular whereas if you combine if you collapse all these things together into singular charts uh they don't you know it's harder to, it's harder to see things that are that are listened to by a smaller group uh, overall uh so one thing that happened for instance sorry this is a little bit of a change the way these charts worked right was that you know the hip-hop chart it wasn't that there was like some oracle out there who knew whether a song was truly hip-hop or not it was is it played on this set of radio stations? Is it sold at this set of record stores? Right. There was like a spe- and it was that was it. It was specifically those things. There wasn't any special knowledge. As soon as they they when they when Billboard stopped doing that and they started to use like online streaming and to sort of you know, like include more signals, that was when um, Gangnam Style, the Psy, <laughs> right? when that became the top of the hip hop chart. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Because it was really popular. But it was not played on any of those of those stations that were used for the hip hop chart before. But all of a sudden it shows up. And because they've changed the way they calculated things, that goes to the that goes to the very top. So all this goes to show that um there's a really subtle set of dynamics in play here that when you get a recommendation or an advertisement that feels like demographic profiling, it's in many cases, maybe not directly based on any data about your demographic categories. It's often based on a sort of uh, prediction or assumption about your demographic categories. Um, advertisements in particular usually try to do that on purpose. So they might like look at your listening history and say, give me a guess. Like what, how old do you think this person is? <laughs> um, but they're not going to try to feed that into the recommender itself. Usually mm-hmm. uh, these systems try to be sort of resolutely demographically, you know, uh, 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 ignorant. They try to mm-hmm. not include that uh, still.
0: Mm, okay. You know, I, what I loved about the book was it really made me think about how I interact with my recommender system with Spotify and, um, And I'm like, maybe I'm doing it wrong. (laughs) Like, am I the user who is confusing the system and not getting the recommendations that I would like? And, you know, in the book, you talk about context. And why context matters um, in, in recommender systems, uh, but also this bigger question of what is context? And that made me think a lot about the way I interact with my music recommender system, with my streaming um service, because I'm like, oh, it's it's all about context. Um, but could you tell us, you know, what you what do you mean by context in the book and how it is or isn't coming through in our recommender systems?
1: yeah okay so context is is weird right so it seems really (laughs) obvious we'd like to say that if you take something out of context that you did something bad right if you want to understand something you have to understand that thing in context so there's a big critique of you know big data all of the sort of machine learning stuff that says hey you're using this data but you don't understand the context of the data and if you don't have the context you don't know what it means. So let me give you an example. I mentioned earlier uh, that I listen to music with my kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if Spotify receives that play information and says, oh, Nick has listened to like whatever song from Encanto, uh, he must like that song. I might say, hey, you don't have the context for that. Like you don't know right. that I was in the car with my kids like, <laughs> listening to this. And that's important because if you don't have that, then you think that I'm listening to it for myself, but I'm not and so on. Um, and so that's a very common critique out of context. But what's funny is that in the field of recommender systems, there is a subfield of research called context aware recommendation. Uh, and what is that field about? Well, they say, Hey, what people like and want depends on their context. And everyone says we should say like, yep, that's right. We have, <laughs> everyone seems to agree so far. Okay. So what's going on? How do we know someone's context? Well, there's a lot of ways you might do that. And a lot of things you might think of as being context, but the dominant ones in that field are, let's say you've got a, uh, you say you're listening on a smartphone, where are you and mm. what time is it? Yeah. Right. So what, you know, what's your GPS uh, coordinates and what time, and that's actually like not a bad uh, shorthand, right. Cause like, if you know where I am right now and you know what time of day it is. I'm I'm in my office, right? Like that's it's not like confusing. And if I'm listening to the same kind of music whenever yeah. I'm at that location at that time, recommend me that kind of music then, right? You don't even it could be anything. Like maybe mm-hmm. I I don't know, maybe I work as like an owl, uh an owl uh healing person at like a nature preserve, and I like to listen to owl calming music at a certain time of day. It doesn't matter. You don't have to know about the mm-hmm. owls. You just know sure, like recommend. Yeah, you know, I work at a pizza parlor throwing pizzas, and at the certain music gets me really pumped to throw pizzas. It doesn't matter, right? Pizzas, who cares? Location, (laughs) time. But for the critics of of big data, of which I consider myself one, that's not enough. That's not context, right? Like that mm-hmm. GPS coordinate, that's not context. That's data you need more context about. Like, why was I there? Like, what, what is it for? Uh, and so, one thing I sort of realized here was that we we talk about this thing like, oh, we say, don't take, take things out of context. Like, there are people running around saying, you know what's good? Taking stuff out of context. I love taking <laughs> things out of context. Um, what you have, I think, is you actually have a disagreement about how to use context or how to know what context is. Uh, Mm -hmm. So it's not a disagreement about whether context is important or not. It's a disagreement about how to know context, like what counts, what counts as context. And, you know, I can dive deep into the nerdy anthropology literature about this, but this is a deep problem. This is like a philosophical problem. Like, how do you know where to stop? If you want to say, oh yeah, you need to know the context. Well, what do you need to know? Do you need to know about that breakup? (laughs) <laughs> you need to know about like my bank account balance? You need to, like there's a lot of things that affect how I'm feeling in a given moment. Where do we stop? And the answer is somewhere. It's arbitrary. You have mm-hmm. to stop somewhere. You have to stop somewhere. And I mean, I wouldn't put it past some of the people who built some of these systems to say like, yeah, sure. Put the bank account balance in there. Maybe, <laughs> <laughs> you know, why not? It All might right. work.
0: So. Yeah, I love that part about context, because I was thinking about how certain songs, you know, I, I want to listen to a song, but for different reasons at different times, depending upon the context. And so what I want the the Spotify to play next is something totally different based on the context. But Spotify doesn't know. So <laughs> <laughs> then I'm skipping, 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 because maybe I don't even know exactly what it is that I want to hear.
1: Yes that i think sorry that's that's an important thing because i think a lot of this uh a lot of critiques are like oh you don't know me you don't understand but you know what we don't know ourselves sometimes right like i don't know what i want to listen to next (laughs) so why would i expect the computer to like figure it out better so i think one thing that happens in these systems is kind of we did uh, everyone the people who build them and who use them are trying to figure out what it means for them to work right there's no Mm -hmm. objective definition for saying that recommender system is good right like so i've mentioned some earlier ways that people have tried to do it but they're making it up there's no you can't pretend that there's some like engineering definition that's going to make it make it functional so Ironically, that happens not just for the people who build it, but for the people who use it, right? Like we have to decide when we use the system, like, I don't know, what is, what is reasonable for me to expect out of this, right? And if they lower your expectations or change your expectations, that could actually make the system that works exactly the same seem like it works or it mm. doesn't work. Right. So they need to change how you're what you expect out of it. Right. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. I love that idea of expectations. Like, what are we expecting from a music recommender system? Because that then changes how satisfied or dissatisfied we are with it. I love that point.
1: Yeah, I think the expectations are are a really important part about how these systems are are, are received. And so if you use something like Discover Weekly on Spotify, for instance, it's not a super advanced algorithm that they're using from what I've, from what I've heard. Right. A lot of it works because they've changed what you expect, right. To say, here's Mm -hmm. a playlist that's just for like poking around in. Uh, And once you do that, instead of saying, you know, here's something you ought to listen to straight through and you, therefore you expect to like everything. It changes what you, you know, then, then all you need is a couple of those songs to be good. If other Mm -hmm. ones are bad, it's just not a big deal.
0: All right. Oh, I like that. I like that. All right. Let's take another break. You're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. We're here on Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sanaa, and I'm here with Dr. Nick Seaver, the author of Computing Taste, Algorithms, and the Makers of Music Recommendation. Now, Nick, we've talked a lot about the algorithms and context and and my ongoing fight with with Spotify on, on its recommendations, but you know, could you tell us a little bit about the people that you talked to and exactly how you were able to get, you know, behind the walls of of where the algorithm is happening? Um, I think a lot of us are, are, you know, we see the algorithm or we think of the algorithm and we think it must be, you know, some magical place, something um, very hard to reach. Um, But could you tell us a little bit about who you talked to and how you got access to do this type of research?
1: Sure. So I think the important thing to know is I'm an anthropologist, which means I study people, not bones. Uh, And one of the sort of signature methods that anthropologists or cultural anthropologists, which is what I am, what we do is called ethnography, um, which is basically go and live with a group of people and talk to them and hang out with them and write about what they do. Mm -hmm. Uh, Historically, anthropologists and sociologists, right, have done this in all sorts of settings around the world, in villages and towns, and companies and hospitals, and you know all sorts of places. Uh, and so that's the method that I, you know, kind of obligated to try to use uh, as an anthropologist. And now um, the trick, of course, is that if you want to study a tech company, what happens if they don't want you to? Yeah. What, happen- what happens if they do- What happens if they don't want you in there? Uh, now, this is not unique to tech companies, I should say. Right, there are lots of groups of people that don't want people to come in and then go about and talk about all their business. So I don't want to pretend that tech companies are are that different, but it is true that uh, in terms of amount of lawyers, uh, tech Mm. companies have are are a little (laughs) different. They have have a lot of lawyers. Um, So I wanted to talk to people who are building these systems, find out how they think, see them work on stuff, right? Like see Mm -hmm. them make decisions. Um, It was hard. I tried to get into companies a lot. I did not (laughs) succeed a lot. Eventually I was able to get basically an internship at the company that I call Whisper in the book, which is a music recommendation company specifically um, for about three months. So I got to be in this office, go to meetings, see people like make decisions, talk about stuff, you know, chat with them. I interviewed, it was, you know, 70 some odd people in the company that I interviewed by the end, Um, It was great. It was like a really nice way to sort of see what was going on. I only got there um, because for a few years beforehand, I was going to conferences. So I would go to Mm. sort of academic and industry conferences where people would present their research, you know, the newest system, you know, recommender algorithms uh, or the newest, you know, system for analyzing music and so on. And I would go to these conferences. uh, And eventually I started seeing the same set of people. You know, all those conferences overlap a little bit. Uh, mm-hmm. And sort of at the intersection was me and a few other people. And so I would see them them fairly often. And eventually one of those people said, hey, do you want to come and study our company? And he just turned out <laughs> to have enough power within the company that he could sort of invite me in. And that was okay. This was a company that had turned me down when I tried to ask them directly <laughs> before. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, you find the person... This I think that a lot of people find this in, in using ethnographic methods is that you'd mm-hmm. really need like an insider who is willing yeah. to sort of vouch for you and to bring you in. And so that was largely where i ended up i did a lot of conferences i went to a lot of hackathons meetups all these mm-hmm. sort of things sent a lot of emails uh, <laughs> and this was before everyone was a real expert at zoom also so so i uh, now i think it'd be easier actually now to do the zoom part mm-hmm. um, so i did a lot of i did a lot of uh, telephone interviews as well just with anyone who would talk to me basically
0: Mm-hmm. I like how in the book you talk about how, um, of course, with ethnography, it's not just one site, but it is the people who are involved. And so maybe it is at a company in a building, but it's also at, you know, these conferences or, you know, just at a bar or, you know, out doing some activity that this person you want to talk to likes to do. Um, I think you mentioned like rock climbing or, or just like- yeah, a, right. a lot- <laughs> A lot of different activities um, because that's where the conversations are happening. That's where these informal decisions are happening, but also where people are changing their mind about what they think or how they're thinking about what they're doing, Um, which I thought was really cool too, that in the book, you can kind of trace how some of the kind of your key informants are changing their minds over time um, about different aspects of, of music or taste or what the system should be doing.
1: Yeah, I think that's a a really important point, right? Like these are people. And so like anyone else, there can be inconsistent. They can think about something and decide they made a mistake and all of that. So yeah, I try to track through the book some sort of, you know, thinking over time, right? To say like, well, we used to do this and now we do this and I don't know. And there is this kind of funny movement, right? Because I think at the middle of recommender systems, there's this weird tension, right? Which is like, we want to help you find new things, right? We want to help you break out of the boxes, like I said Mm -hmm. before, of whatever you listened to before. How are we going to do that? Well, we're going to do it by modeling what you like and trying to sort of present it to you, right? And that's a weird tension, right? I think a lot of critics will say, Um, you know, the problem with these systems is that they just give you more and more of the same. They give you exactly what you already know, but they're trying to help you break out. And I think a lot of people who work at these systems find themselves caught in that tension of like, oh, you know, we want to help people break out of boxes, but to do that, we're going to kind of put them in a box first or try to identify like what box they're, and then they're going to try to break the box again. So they're often doing this realization of like, you know, the the thing we thought was going to sort of break people out of boxes before kind of turned into another box. <laughs> uh, and I think that's just going to keep happening. There's no reason to think it would ever stop. But uh, it's interesting to sort of track that because it's it's very much attention that people who build these systems are aware of. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I, I love that how you really presented. You know, these differences, these conversations, these debates that are internal um, to the folks who are making the music recommender systems as well. Right? It's not just one clear cut agenda, but these are people taking in additional information and that information is going into the algorithm as well. Um, So I really liked having that insider view of the people, right? And not just this kind of amorphous algorithm. Um, Now I have to ask you a question that I know that you asked the folks that you talked to as well, which is why do you think people like the music that they like?
1: Oh gosh. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to see if I can answer this in a way that's not uh boring. I have some very academic answers to this. Um, let me say the, the sort of the answer you're supposed to give as a social scientist these days, uh, is basically that people's taste is kind of the result of their social position right so we say like people like fancy people (laughs) like fancy music not fancy people like not fancy music and then maybe what's happened more recently is that fancy people kind of show off how fancy they are by liking lots of music right we call this omnivorousness this is this is classic sociology stuff Mm -hmm. uh, at this point (laughs) but i think people will recognize it right so if you say well what what how do you know that someone's like cool now or like high (laughs) high class oh, I listen to everything, right? Yeah. Like I listen to I listen to anything, I don't care. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's sort of how people signal status. I, you know, I see some truth in that. I think it's reasonable. I, What I think is interesting about taste for me uh, is that it is clearly something that people sort of learn and acquire in environments. And so the problem with that, like fancy people like fancy stuff theory of taste is it doesn't tell you a whole lot about how people get their taste, right? About like how people come to like the things that they like. And so there's a bunch of great, uh, mostly sociologists actually, who write about this process, right? Like if you know people who are uh, uh, opera fans, for instance, like how do they become opera fans, right? Opera mm-hmm. is supposed to feel like we think of as a fancy thing now. You don't get born as an opera fan, you kind of learn it. Mm-hmm. Um, and one thing that these folks will say, uh, this work is called, it's the pragmatics of taste, they call it, uh, is that they say, you know, you develop your taste with all sorts of like technologies in play, right? Like you, you know, you put a, you put that tape in your, in your Walkman, right? Or you, Mm -hmm. or you start to listen to this playlist, right? You do, you do stuff, you put it on your headphones. There's a lot of like stuff you do uh, to try to acquire your taste. And so I, you know, the reason, so of course, because the stuff that you do is shaped by the kind of person that you are, right? So if you're a fancy person, you do fancy stuff, that would explain why fancy people end up liking fancy things. Um, And so, yeah, I think that my theory of taste is kind of, you know, people learn to like things from people around them and Mm -hmm. they, and it happens over time, right? This, Mm -hmm. I don't think of taste as being an inbuilt thing that's, you know, you just have it uh, and that's just the way you are. Um, Although it can feel that way. I, I always remember like turning on the radio, and hearing a song by some band that I really hated come on and you'd, you know, you feel it in your gut. You're like, oh, horrible. I want to like, turn that off. And that feels like the most natural response in the world. You're like, that's just in me. That's just the way that I am. Um, but even though it feels that way, I don't think so. Right. Like that's a that's clearly a learned thing. Nobody, uh, you know, you didn't get put on put on this earth with with a distaste for Imagine Dragons in your, in your DNA. Right. That's not that didn't happen to you. That's something that, that got learned. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I think that's sort of my my theory of taste now. And what what makes that, um, that's sort of important actually for the way the book goes, right? Because now people are developing taste still, and mm-hmm. they're doing it in a world that has recommender systems in it, right? Yeah. So we're learning how to like things in a world that's been shaped by this kind of stuff, by algorithms. Mm-hmm. And so that is a one really funny consequence, which is you could say, what if you built a, music recommender system and you had a really bad theory of taste right? you, were just, you were just wrong about why people liked what they liked but you put it out there right say imagine mm-hmm. spotify has just like it's malfunctioned or somebody's gone gone crazy in spotify and they've made up some really goofy system people might start to like music in a way that yeah. matches that system just because they hear it right you can't mm-hmm. like you can't uh, uh, experience liking music that you have not heard. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we know, and this has been true on the radio for a long time. That's why the radio plays the same songs over and over. People learn mm-hmm. to like things by hearing them. And so a system that has like a bad, quote unquote, bad theory of taste could make itself become true mm-hmm. by recommending things uh, uh, according to that theory. And that's important, right? That, that's, yeah. that changes the way that we might wanna think about these systems. They're not just wrong, mm-hmm. um, they're influential.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, very influential. As you were talking, I was I was thinking about different moments where I've heard a song on the radio and I'm like, oh, I have that gut reaction of like, this is terrible, horrible. I never want to hear it again. I hate it. But then what happens, you hear it a million times and you're like, oh, I kind of like this song, but do you <laughs> like it or are you just used to it? You, you know, do.
1: You do <laughs> like it. That's me. Re- <laughs> I think that's the thing is we think of that as being fake, right? That kind of learned taste over time. Like, oh, come on. Like you did not like that song <laughs> when it started. But if you like, if you feel like you like it now, that's what liking is. I don't think we have to feel bad about it. There's a story in the beginning of the book in the prologue about someone at the office uh, when I was there who listened to some music that was, you know, they would play music on the, on the, the sound system in the office all day long and there was some music that came out while I was there and he was like I hate this this is so bad this is the worst music I've ever heard and then because I have a record of all the music that was played on this sound system he plays that music later in the in the (laughs) in the summer while I'm there and I think oh this is so interesting But here's an example with documentation of someone (laughs) really changing their taste just because they've heard it a lot it
0: happens. I love that. I love that, And I love that story in the beginning. Well, Nick, thank you so much for being here with us this morning. I could talk to you forever. This was such a great conversation. Thank Thank you. And thank you so much for this great book. Absolutely love it. Computing Taste, Algorithms and the Makers of Music Recommendation. Thanks, Nick. Thanks a lot. Thank you again to Dr. Nick Seaver. He's an assistant professor of anthropology at Tufts University and the author, of course, of Computing Taste, Algorithms, and the Makers of Music Recommendation. I thoroughly enjoyed this book. It made me think about these music recommender systems differently. It made me think about myself differently as far as how I interact with these systems as well. And for today's positive note, I just want to remind you that here on WYXR.org, WYXR 91.7 FM, you're not going to hear the same three or four songs every hour. And here you actually get the opportunity to learn about new music. Maybe you are becoming an enthusiastic listener and maybe it's here on WYXR that you're learning about some new artists or even just a new genre that you didn't know that you would like. I know for myself that I have definitely heard some music that I was like, wow, I've never heard that before. What artist is that? And now guess what? They are showing up as recommended artists and recommended songs in my music recommender streaming at my music streaming services. So let WYXR be your music discovery station. You've been listening to Let's Grab Coffee. I'm Sanaa. I am so excited that you are here with me this Monday morning and every Monday morning morning and I just have to say that I have something very exciting coming up for you in the month of February so you are going to want to tune in every Monday 11 a.m central time here on wyxr.org or if you're local 91.7 FM Memphis Let's Grab Coffee is collaborating with Black is America podcast I am so excited to bring you some featured episodes of Black is America. And you're going to find out why, because you're going to come back next Monday morning at 11 a.m. And I just cannot wait for you to meet Dominic Lawson, the creator of Black is America podcast, to learn about the show, learn about the motivations behind creating the podcast, award-winning podcast, and then also for us to listen to some episodes together. Well, this has been Let's Grab Coffee. I'm Sanaa and I can't wait to have you back next Monday with your cup of coffee.